I think many of you are probably familiar with a guy by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote in, uh, a book that was published in 1981 called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, it became a bestseller. It was so successful, it was re-released 20 years later on the 20th anniversary. And Rabbi Harold Kushner, as a young uh, theological student, was really wrestling with issues of human suffering, looking at the book of Job. And he had a lot of questions about the experience of suffering, and they all came to the forefront of his mind when his three-year-old son contracted a very rare disease that took his life. And so he started penning his conclusions about God and about suffering in order to provide answers to people. And Kushner, basically what he did is he popularized one of the great ancient theological conundrums, and that is this, how can God be both great and powerful and good and yet allow suffering in this life? How can he be both perfectly good and perfectly powerful? Something doesn't seem to be right. Uh, I mean, what he was wrestling with is like, okay, well, if he is God and there's suffering, then he's not good. Or if he's good and there's suffering and he doesn't do anything about it, then he can't be God. Something is lacking. Either it's lacking in his love or lacking in his strength. But there is just no other explanation for it. And so what he did is he concluded this in his writings that God is all loving. That is his nature. The reality is, though, he is not all powerful. That's why he doesn't do anything about your distress. In essence, he basically adopted the position that God is kind of like this cosmic watchmaker. And then he literally abandons. He just kind of walks away from his creation. And he loves you and he sympathizes with all the problems that you're faced with. But he's just incapable uh, to actually do anything about it. And that's why he allows suffering in this world. Now, when you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the third king of Israel, draws a completely different conclusion. He actually presents that God is vitally and vibrantly present as we navigate the waters of this life including suffering. When we pray to a God, we approach him. He doesn't say, listen, that's not my job. Can't help you there. No, he is involved. He is literally inside the fence. And so let's take a look at what Solomon has to say. Now, just to kind of keep things in context, and it always is very important to do, you let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse 24 and 26. Last week, we actually walked through this passage. It is critically important to the development of the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you missed it, you might want to just go online. You can watch it because this is the first of six conclusions that Solomon draws. And notice what he does in verse 24 and following. He highlights the gift that God gives. He says, verse 24, chapter 2, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink And tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. He's saying, listen, God is good. And he actually gives good things in life. Like the ability to eat and to drink and to actually find good in your labor. The simple pleasures in life, he actually gives us the ability. It's from his hand that we can actually enjoy these things. And then verse 25, you might want to underscore it. Because he says... For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? 
God wants us to have enjoyment, fulfillment, to experience purpose, but you cannot have enjoyment apart from God. And so notice some of the other gifts that he gives. Verse 26, for to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He gives skill for living. He gives knowledge, understanding. He gives joy in himself. While to the sinner, he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. So your purpose in life is to live in his presence. And God wants you to experience joy. That's why he's given himself and his gifts. It is because God by nature is good and he gives good gifts to his people. Now, we get that. We read it. It's right there, black and white. Yep, believe that. And, you know, in our life experiences, we've seen God's goodness. We've experienced his gifts. We have eaten. We've drank things. We, we've had goodness in our work. He gives wisdom and knowledge. He gives us joy. The problem is, though, is that in life, there are sufferings. There is injustice. There is pain. How does God really give joy and purpose in the midst of all the sufferings that we experience. What are the convictions that you and I have to hold if we're going to cultivate joy and purpose in life? That's why this next passage is so critically important. The words we're about to read are going to be somewhat familiar. I'm sure that you've heard them before. And yet, I want you to see them in context. You, you see, it's really important that you have good theology because your theology really governs your perception of reality. The most important aspect of your being is what you believe about God. And that's why he starts underlying three key convictions to cultivate joy and purpose in life. And the first one is chapter three, verses one through ten, where he gives us this conviction. God appoints a time for everything. Look at chapter three, verse one. There is an appointed time for everything, not some things, but for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Life is composed of a wide spectrum of human experience and emotion. And he is saying here from the very beginning, it is God who has appointed a time for everything. This word time is used 30 times in verses one through eight. And this is, it's really interesting. You see that word event? There is a point in time for everything and there is a time for every event. Interesting Hebrew word. It could also be just uh, translated like delight. In the affairs of people, God brings delight and God says, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Now, some people say, well, then what we need to do as we're going to walk through this is that we need to figure out what time it is. So we figure out how to respond. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is telling us that God is intimately involved in every aspect of living. The major events and the simple ones. And there are going to be like 14 pairs that he's going to line up. And they're going to be extremes. It's a, a remember from literature class, remember what a merism is? You point out two extremes and it covers then everything in between. That's what he's going to do as we walk through this. And so the very first one that we encounter is verse 2. Were to show that there's a point in time for everything, he says, verse 2, there is a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant 
and a time to uproot what is planted. And so he's saying every birth, it's conception. I want you to know there's an appointed time. I am there just like I am there. And there's an appointed time for a person to die. Now we think, hey, we are in control. We got a pregnancy. It's inconvenient. We don't like it. This didn't work out with our plan. So we're going to abort, right? I want you to understand God is even in the midst of that. And he's, you know, like if you take it on the opposite end. Physician-assisted suicide. So, listen, we'll pick the end of our own life. I want you to know that God says, no, I'm there. I, I appoint a person's life. If you want a text on that, like it says in like Psalm 139, it's talking about, like, it says, And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. I am in the midst. And he says, that's true in human life, but look at verses, the end of verse 2. It's also true about plant life. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. God says, listen, you're not even thinking about plants, but I want you to know I'm there. There's an appointed time for that seed to go in the ground. And there's a time where you pull out the flowers of summer, like you might have been doing this past weekend, because they frankly don't look so good anymore. And you pull it out. There's a time to uproot what is planted? So whether you're a person or you're a dandelion, God says, I am there. I'm sovereign. There's a pointed time for everything. And what this is doing is just expanding your understanding of God. It is deepening your theology. God is saying, you've underestimated me. On Veterans Day, November 11th, 1963, President John F. Kennedy went to Arlington Cemetery to pay his respects to the the heroes of our country and to honor them. And while he was at the Arlington House, Robert E. Lee's former home that was then taken over and his farm was created into a, turned into a cemetery, while he is standing at the Arlington House, John F. Kennedy made this statement. It is so beautiful that I could stay here forever. Two weeks later, he was brought back to Arlington Cemetery, this time with a flag-draped coffin, and he was buried beneath an eternal flame. And John F. Kennedy's favorite passage of the Bible is the one we're looking at this morning that begins by saying, there is a time to give birth, and there is a time to die. To show how intricately involved God is involved in all the affairs of humanity, look at verse 3. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. And you read this and a time to kill and you're like, okay, wait a second here. You mean to say there's a time to murder people? What, what, what's going on there? I get the time to heal bit, but the time to kill. Well, first of all, I want you to understand that that word kill there, that does not mean murder. Okay. There is another word to commit murder. Um, you probably are familiar with it. Uh, Ten Commandments, you may have heard of them. One of them says, thou shall not kill. Good job, Tom. That's because when Tom went to school, there were Ten Commandments in the classroom. For the rest of you who are like, what is he talking about here? Tom knows. Thou shall not, that is the word for murder. 
The word here, kill, is used to involve like in capital punishment or destroying enemies in a just war. Now, uh, Solomon isn't giving any moral judgments on there. He's just saying there is a time to kill. There's a time to heal. Incidentally, that whole subject of, of capital punishment. I know in our country, uh, it's like, no way. No, we, we are not going to take the life of someone who has murdered people. No, we, we can't do that. Uh, actually, I know that it's countercultural. But as Christians, we're called to be biblical. And God says that if someone murders another person, that man should take that person's life. Why? Because the, those who are bereaved are going to be comforted? Well, maybe not so much. Possibly. But the real issue is the image of God. If you're wrestling with this, let me just give you a text on it. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And it says this. God says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. The issue is that people are made in the image of God. That means, to a limited degree, they share the likeness of God. When someone commits murder, in essence, they are killing God in effigy. And God says, people are made in my image. And this is how I want the state to deal with it. He says, there is a time to kill and a time to heal. Healing taking place in real broken relationships. Healing taking place in broken bodies, whether in hospitals or homes. God says, I want you to know I am in the midst. There's an appointed time to heal. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to build up. There's a time where things, whether it be nations or relationships, they're, they're torn down. And other times, whether it be walls or cities or buildings or people's relationships, there's a time to build up. And God says, I want you to know I'm even in the midst of those activities. Look at verse 4. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. You see, life is full of a full spectrum of emotions. There are times of weeping, like at a time of like like a funeral or when someone dear to us has passed away. We weep. God has given us the full spectrum of emotion. He wants us to express them. And so when we experience loss, we do weep. There is grieving. And as believers, we weep with those who weep. Why? Because we enter into their pain. We have compassion and we care and we, and we bring comfort. And so if you've lost someone, they're no longer on this earth. It's okay to weep. In fact, you should. And he also says there's a time to laugh. There's a time for mourning. There's a time for dancing. These very same people who are mourning when someone passes away at a wedding or at some sort of special gathering or just being together with our family, there's, there's a time for laughter and for dancing. And it, it exists. And we have the wide spectrum of emotion. And by the way, if you always kind of thought like, well, God never wants me to dance. Uh, here's a verse for you. Verse four, he says, there is a time to dance. Now, maybe you feel like, you know, my dancing isn't so good. And so maybe it's okay for you to refrain from that or just doing it in the privacy of your own little bedroom. That's fine. But he says, there's a time to let loose and cut it up. There is a time to dance. And then God says, I'm in the midst of all of these events. There are these times. Notice verse 5. There's a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace 
and a time to shun embracing. And you need to understand a little bit about stones and how they function. So if you uh, have taken a tour of Israel, apparently the tour guides say things like, well, you know, God, he's up there and he sent an angel with all these stones. And he said, I want you to place these all around the earth. But somehow this angel tripped when he got to Palestine, and that's why Israel is just covered in stones. It's just rock everywhere. And if you've gone there, I recently spoke with a guy who just came back, and he's like, he was remarking, like, there are stones everywhere. It's, it's almost amazing they can grow anything because there's very little dirt and a whole lot of rock. If you're going to have crops, which are helpful to feed families and people, you're going to have to take those stones out. In, in ancient warfare, in order to basically make a, a field... Uh, so they couldn't cultivate it, they would throw and dump as many stones as possible just to kind of wreck the land so they couldn't get a crop in. You can't get crops, you can't feed people. can't feed people, you're probably not too strong in battle. And what Solomon is saying is that with God, there's a time where stones are actually there and there's a time where stones are taken out to build walls, to build homes. In order to grow crops, these things are there. And he says, God is in the midst. There's a time to embrace, and there's a time to shun embracing. There's a time where it's illicit, and it's wrong, and you stay away from it. And there's so much of life where we're embracing. We're embracing people. We're building relationships. We're gathering stones. We're building homes. We're building vitality and human friendship and love. And then he says, verse 6, there's a time to search, and there's a time to give up as lost, a time to keep, and a time to throw away. You know how when you lose something, you start searching for it? I mean, yesterday, we had lost two things at the same time, like a keys and a phone or something like that. I'm like, we're always looking for things, and you look for it. And why? Because, well, it's important for us for the next step or whatever we're supposed to do in our life today for the next hour. And there's sometimes where you just kind of give up, like that contact that you lost. You remember? And you spent 45 minutes, you were late to work, and you're like, it must have dematerialized because I can't find it. It's gone. And there's a time, he says, to just give up. As lost. And you see this in verse 6. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. And here we have the biblical basis for a garage sale. Right there. You see that? There's a time to keep. You go to the store and you're getting some stuff and you, and you buy it. And then there's a time to throw away, whether you're selling at the garage sale. By the way, I'm still waiting for someone to have a garage sale and have Ecclesiastes 3.6 on there. You know, I haven't seen it yet, but here's your verse for it. Okay. And there's a time where, you know what, we're going to just give this to goodwill and someone else is going to buy it. Okay, but that's just kind of how it works. He says, all of this works in the panorama of God's timing. And look at verse 7. There's a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak. And here again, he's entering into the human suffering and in, in the culture of Israel. And you still see this sometimes today. When someone dies, the people close to that person, they actually rent their clothing. They tear it. And you're like, hey, what happened to that guy's shirt? They give a visual expression, a symbol of a broken heart. My heart is breaking, so I'm tearing my clothes. I want you to see this is how I feel. And then when the time of mourning is over, you know what they do? They sew those clothes back up. Uh, The Jews, what they practice when someone passed away, you would go and be with that person, but you didn't say anything. You just were quiet. You were showing your support. You were praying with the person. You were there. And Solomon says, there's a time 
There's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. And frankly, you're going to do yourself a lot of good if you know when those times are. Sometimes it's just better to be quiet. Don't say anything. And sometimes you just need to speak. You need to say what needs to be said. And God says, I'm in that time. There's a time for everything, and I am there. And then this, this poem concludes in verse 8, and it is perplexing. They are hard to understand. A time to love. Yeah, got that. I get it. But what? A time to hate? A time for war? And a time for peace? What, what is going on here? A, a time for war, time for peace, a time to hate? Are you serious? Does God, did, would he ever want me to hate anything? I, I can't imagine that. I'm so focused on God being a God of love, I can't imagine that there would be any hate involved. Let me ask you, what do you think? Do you think God hates anything? Hmm, pretty good question there. Okay, I, guess what? He does. God actually hates things. For some of you, you're like, what? what? What possibly could he be hate? I mean, he's God of love. How could he hate anything? Well, let me just give you, just even from the Old Testament, some examples of things that God hates. Like he hates idolatry. Do you know what? Whether it be sticks and stones, or your car, or your career, or all your pleasure, or whatever, and you're just fixated on that, and how much money you've got in the bank, or what your financial portfolio looks like, and, and that is your little G.O.D., Listen, if that is the controlling factor in your life, that's what brings you joy, happiness, and that's where all your trust is, I got news for you. God hates it. He's going to address that issue in your life, and it might be painful. He also hates hypocrisy. There are all sorts of actions that God, God hates injustice. He hates arrogance. He hates deceit. You know, you can actually be a believer, and you can actually do things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, you might want to write these verses down, verses 16 through 19, he actually gives you a list of things that God hates. He says, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. So this idea of six and even seven is the idea that this is a, not an exhaustive list, but this is to give you a sampling of some things that God hates. So what sort of things does God hate? Haughty eyes, kind of that prideful, proud look attitude, the lying tongue, he hates it. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. You see evil, you see what is morally wrong, you see what God calls sin, and you're like, that's my idea of entertainment, and I'm going for it. You run to it, God says, I hate it. Look at verse 19, a false witness who utters lies. You are lying and telling things that are not true. You manufacture fake news. You will not tell the truth. God says, I hate that kind of behavior. And one who spreads strife among brothers. If you're the person that's running around, tearing people up, saying things that aren't true, causing all sorts of division, oh, you've, you've got a righteous reason why you're doing that. Well, I've been hurt, so I'm going to make people pay, and I'm going to split this thing in two. I'm going to divide that relationship. You just need to understand God hates that behavior. I mean, God hates sin. You know who else hates sin? Not only God the Father... God the Son. He hates sin. In fact, he hates sin and its domination of people so much so that is why he came to literally pay the price and the penalty for sin so that you and I don't need to be slaves of sin anymore. And so for us, 
We need to learn how to hate the things that God hates. That's part of the problem. We don't. We just kind of cozy up to it. We rationalize it. Well, well, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. If God says, I hate it, we might want to rethink it. You know, like abortion. The ending of a human life. We hate it. But we love that lady that's making her trip on Tuesday to that abortion clinic. And she needs to know that we love her. Hate the sin. Love the sinner. Alcoholism, drug use, and just, we hate it. It's, a, it's destructive effects on that person and that family. But we love that person. God says there's a time to hate. There's a time to love. There's a time for war. And there's a time for peace. Abraham Lincoln, one of his biographers, writes of when Abraham Lincoln was young, the very first time that Lincoln saw a slave uh, offered on a New Orleans slave block, he recoiled within. He said, quote, there was a rising hatred inside of me against slavery. And I swore if someday I could do something about it, I would do something about it with all his heart he hated slavery there is a time to hate now as we have uh, made our way through these verses you're like i've heard these words before and you know what there was a group back in the 1960s 1965 there was a hippie song and it was sung by the birds some of you are like oh yeah pete Seeger wrote it and guess what all they did is they took these words and they put it to music now the song was uh, supposed to be an anti-vietnam song and they didn't like that a time for war. So you know what they did? They changed that. They like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's the whole point of our song. We don't want you to go to war. So what we're going to do, we're going to say this. They just took that time of war out and they said, I swear it's not too late. And I'll tell you, very few people in the world want war. Most of the people in the world, whether they're in Iran or Korea, in the United States, we don't want war. We want peace. We want it well. Well for our families, well for our country, and well for the countries of the world. There are a few maniacs out there that they're okay with war because when they push the button or they create the havoc, they're going to go hide out in a bunker somewhere and everybody else is going to pay the price. And I tell you, though, we are a fallen people living in a fallen world. And until the Prince of Peace comes, there are going to be times where there's going to be war. And by the way, when the Prince of Peace comes, do you know what precedes that? Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. It is the battle of Armageddon, a war unlike the world has ever seen. And then the Prince of Peace comes in Revelation 20. There is a thousand years of his reign in his millennial kingdom. Well, Solomon is wrestling with all of this. And he says, verse 9, well, then what profit? What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I mean, he's working, he's involved in all the affairs of everyday life. I mean, but... He can't change it. What benefit is it? He's just toiling away. And he says, verse 10, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men, the sons of Adam. We're, we're from Adam. We've inherited his sinful condition, which to occupy themselves. And he says, I see it. It's like we're so involved in the busy work and the toil of this everyday life coming and going and laughing and mourning and death and war and birth. And, and we're so caught up with this. That we miss God. 
And that's why then Solomon is going to tell us the second conviction that you and I need to hold if we're really going to cultivate joy and purpose in life. First is, we need to understand that God has it appointed a time for everything. He's far more involved than you might imagine. But the second is found in verse 11. And that is, God has set eternity in our hearts. This is such an important verse. You might want to, again, mark it. It is critical to your understanding of who God is and how he's made us. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He also has set eternity in their heart. In the midst of all the ebb and flow of life, God has set eternity in our hearts. He has not left life empty and random and godless. Actually, he's involved himself in every detail and he has placed it in your heart where there is a compelling desire to know to experience, to find, this text says, God has made everything appropriate. You see that in verse 11? It could be translated, maybe in your Bibles it is, everything beautiful in its time. And he has placed eternity in our hearts. We know that there's got to be something more than we see, hear, touch, feel, smell. There's something that is compelling in us that there's more to this life than me. And God says, I am the one who has placed eternity in your hearts. I have done so that you will come to believe in me and experience eternal relationship with me. That is a big reason why he's placed eternity in our hearts. By the way, you may be a non-Christian. You might be flying, I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist. And you want to fly that flag? And that's fine. You have every right to do that. You just need to know that that gnawing, burning uh, ideal in your heart that says you're wrong and you're missing it, that's from God. He's placed eternity in your hearts. He wants you to know there's a lot more than the here and now. It's not when you're dead, you're dead. No, you're just a dot on the line of eternity. You see, God has given us kind of innately this intuition that he exists and it comes from him. There's this quest, this deep-seated desire to know and appreciate the beauty of creation, to know the character and the composition and meaning of the world. It's God who's given eternity in our hearts to discern purpose and destiny. This comes from him. And so God is saying, listen, I want you to know. If you really want joy and purpose in life to experience all those good gifts that I gave you to know joy and purpose, you've got to believe and know that I've placed eternity in your hearts. There is a famous missionary scholar by the name of Don Richardson, and he wrote a book based on this verse the book was called eternity in their hearts and in this book he talks about 25 plus missionaries that went to cultures and people groups that literally had no scripture no witness to the one true god there were no missionaries ever present and what he found from these reports from these missionaries is that there were vestiges of belief in god or a quest to know him or an understanding that god existed and yet there were these glaring gaps and so what these missionaries did is they, they listened to what these people knew and understood. They saw the gaps and they literally presented how Jesus Christ is God, the son, entering in humanity, paying the penalty for sin, offering eternal life. And they showed, this is what you know. Let me show you who Jesus is. And they effectively led them to a belief in the eternal son of God. They had eternity in their hearts. And now they have eternal relationship with the son. And friends, that is the gospel. Remember John 1 verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light 
of men. What kind of life does Jesus give? John 3.16, he gives eternal life. Why does Jesus give eternal life? Because God has set eternity in our hearts. It is the completion. It is the experience. You must know him and trust him. And as I've been really praying and thinking through this verse, it says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And some of the stuff in life is not beautiful and it's painful and hard and I don't get it. One of the reasons God gives eternal life is so that we will, whether in this life or most certainly in the life to come, we will see indeed, I didn't get it at the time and it was painful. And yet now I see why it's beautiful in your hand and in your time. What are the convictions that we must hold to cultivate joy and purpose in life? Well, you got to understand that God appoints a time for everything. You must believe and understand that God has set eternity in our hearts. But here's the one that you and I are going to struggle with. Let me give you a third conviction found at the end of this verse. God has placed limitations to our understanding. You see that he says, verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time, everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. You see that? God desires for us to understand all of life. We're like compelled. We want to know. And this same God places limitations on our ability to do so. And both have been ordained by God. You need to understand as much as we value education and all that we've learned from knowledge and science and technology and many, much of it is just awesome. There are limitations and God has placed them. You are not God. We want to explore. We want to know. We want to learn. And all this should do is evoke and bring worship and it should bring joy to our life because we see it from the hand of God. But there are limitations to our understanding. But God will at one point make everything beautiful in its time. It is already in his sight. One day we'll see it. And that, my friends, is the gospel. But this is hard for us. I mean, we wrestle with why was I born this way? Why did my father treat me this way? Why didn't I get this blessing? Why did this terrible thing happen to me? You know, what God says is you may have those questions. And I know you will. And I'm not going to always give you the answer. And you're going to have to be okay with that. And this is where we recoil. Like, what are you thinking? No, 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 no. It's me. I want the answers. And God says, like the text, there are limitations. You're not going to find out all the work that God has done from the beginning even to the end. It's kind of like tapestry. You ever seen that? You look at the backside of that and there's just strings and knots and it's like a mess. It like, it's like your life and my life, right? I don't make this is just knotted up the string this is ugly. I kind of see a pattern here, but ah, but you flip that baby over and what do you got? Man, look at the beauty. All these threads, they've created this just amazing tapestry. That is life. All things will be beautiful in its time. It is Augustine that said this. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find peace in you until we come to the place where we're trusting him you know what ecclesiastes 311 is it is like the corollary or the counterpart to romans 828 in the new testament remember that text 
But God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right? It's God who does it, who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And we're like, we usually think like the good is like we'll get what we want. That's not the good. It may work that way. It may not. You know what the good is? If you don't know, just always take things in context. Romans 8, 29. What is the good? The good is that you and I are conformed to the image of Jesus. And that's what he does even in our deepest trials and our pain and the things that we don't understand. And so, friends, it's kind of like this. You know, when we're perhaps, uh, maybe you're young and you're, you're getting married and you're like, I love this verse. Man, God works everything. It's, everything is beautiful in its time, man. This is glorious and it's blissful, right? But you know, then you see this young couple and about 10 years later, well, things are a little different. You know, there's kids underfoot. You step on their Legos at night. Uh, there's difficulties and problems. Your job is not what you thought it was. Why didn't I actually do a, a, some sort of evaluation before I signed up for a career like this? Maybe you even lost your job. Maybe you got a health crisis. You find out that, wow, home ownership is a lot more sweat than sweet, you know, and it's difficult. And you're wrestling with all these things. And what happens is that some folks go, you know what? This is what I signed up for. I signed up for life is good and beautiful. And, and frankly, this is painful and hard and difficult. And I'm out. And you bail. And I want you to know something. God has a reason for every season. And to trust God brings a sense of unity and of hope and peace. And it's on his schedule. And things are far more beautiful after the hard polishing. And isn't that kind of what life is like sometimes? You see... In Monopoly, we have this get-out-of-jail-free card. Not with God. He says, you stay with me. I know this is hard, but I've appointed a time for everything. And everything you will see one day is beautiful in its time. That means everything. Your loss, your lost romance, your failures, your brokenness, your battles that you face, your fragmented dreams, your hospital stay, even your terminal illness. As difficult as that is, God says, it is not profitless. If you don't trust in God, what happens is you see things as meaningless and miserable. God says, I want you to see me. I've placed eternity in your hearts. Trust me. You see, if you don't learn to trust God, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to create a God out of your own imagination that has no basis of fact. It's just whatever you want, throw it together. It's your God. It's idolatry, but it's your God. Or you will believe in the true God, but you're going to be in a constant state of agitation because God doesn't work things out the way you think he should, and he doesn't give you the answers you think you deserve to be given. And so what we need to do is we need to learn how to trust God to be God. Friends, you and I have got two choices. Frustration for our inability and our unwillingness to understand. It's just, we're going to have, we're frustrated. Or faith. Faith in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. That's going to be, it's going to be one of the two for you. Frustration in our ability to understand or faith. I'm just going to trust him, his goodness, and his sovereignty. And so I just want to ask, do you really trust God? I, I want you to know that... Um, this is really tough. I've had my share of some pretty big losses in life. And I've had to walk around my neighborhood and I've had to process do I really trust God? Because this is hard and this is painful. And frankly, 
a lot of this doesn't make sense. I, I get some of this, but it's difficult. It's not always easy to trust God in the mysterious events of life. But in the midst of the mystery, God says, hold these convictions. Because I've got you and I've got this. And our purpose is to live life in his presence. And friends, these convictions, they allow that to be our experience. I think many of you are familiar with a woman named Corey Ten Boom, uh, the Dutch watchmaker. Her and her family were involved in the rescue efforts of so many Jews during World War II when, when Hitler and the Nazi regime was literally taking Jews, rounding them up, putting them in cattle cars, and taking them to prison camps, either working to death or just flat out killing them. Well, Corey and her sister were also, because of their involvement in rescuing these Jews, were hauled off to one of these terrible prison camps. I want you to know what hardcore Christianity looks like. It looks like these girls. They've been ripped away from their home. They're facing a war. They're separated from family. And they are watching prisoners die. A couple days after they got set up in their barracks, do you know what these girls did? You want to see what hardcore Christianity looks like? They started a Bible study in their barracks. In this prisoner of war camp and all these people are dying and this extermination that's taking place. And they also, because they're believers, they practice giving thanks to God because they knew how good it is for their soul and for their understanding and their ability to have peace in the midst of chaos. In one of these times of giving thanks for everything, uh, Corey ended the prayer and Betsy says, Corey... You didn't thank God for these lice and these bedbugs. It was the thing that Betsy and Corey hated the most, especially Corey. Because, I mean, they, were, they couldn't sleep at night and they were always being eaten at and it just drove them crazy. And Corey's like, that's crazy. I'm not thanking God for these lice and these bedbugs. No. She goes, no, you must. And so by faith, Corey thanked God for these lice. Now, it wasn't until much later that they got an answer, at least uh, Corey did, of why, why the guards didn't come into their barracks. You see, they're running a Bible study. Uh, this is pretty easy pickings if you're a Nazi guard. This would have led to their death quickly. But the Nazi guards never came into their barracks, and it wasn't until much later that Corey learned of the reason. The Nazi guards were afraid they would get lice, and they didn't want anything to do it so they never went into these women's barracks because they were just afraid of it. And really what happened is it turned out that God used lice as a shield. And only God can do that. Only God could use a bed bug. So when you and I face that which we do not know, you know what we need to do? We got to go to what we do know. Like it says in Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. You see, trusting in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, you know what it does? It's the key to cultivating joy and purpose in life. We must trust God to be God. Let's pray. Lord, what an awesome passage of scripture. We've heard it perhaps many times, but now perhaps we're understanding it in ways we never have. Lord, for someone who has come here today, they're wrestling with the issues. They get it, this, this yearning, this eternity in their hearts, but they do not know yet until now 
that they are meant to trust in you and your son. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin, and I believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins, for life, eternal life, because you placed eternity in my heart. And Lord, for all of us, would you build up our understanding, increase our faith. May we trust you even with the great difficulties of life. Develop these convictions for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.